Welcome to the School Psych Podcast, where we are learning brains and growing hearts. I'm your host, Ivana Luki. This podcast is meant to be a resource for caregivers and school staff, or really just anyone interested in the psychology of learning. Before we jump into this week's episode, just a small caveat. Although I work for a local school division, this podcast is a personal project, and it's unaffiliated with said school division. With that being said, let's jump into this week's episode. Welcome back to the School Psych Podcast. Last episode, we did a deep dive on one of the neurodevelopmental disorders called intellectual disability. If you haven't listened to episode seven yet, I highly recommend you go back and listen to that episode because I talk about what neurodevelopmental disorders actually are, and it kind of sets the stage for the following episodes. So under the umbrella of neurodevelopmental disorders fall disorders like intellectual disability and specific learning disorder. So last episode, we talked about intellectual disability, what it is, the diagnostic criteria. We talked about how a big part of assessing intellectual disability is uh, looking at independence with daily life skills and assessing cognitive functioning, so our IQ. We also talked about how we support students with intellectual disability, as well as common misconceptions about people who live with intellectual disability. It's a good episode. It busts a lot of myths. I highly recommend you go back and listen to that one as well. On today's episode, we are covering another neurodevelopmental disorder. It is called, drumroll please, well, you already know because it's in the title of this episode. But today we're doing a deep dive on specific learning disorder, also known as SLD. Actually, specific learning disorder goes by a few names. You might have also heard the term learning disabilities. Uh, Maybe you heard the term dyslexia, or maybe you're familiar with dysgraphia or dyscalculia. Specific learning disorder and learning disabilities are kind of similar in what they mean. They are like the umbrella term for these challenges with learning. And then under that umbrella, you can have very specific delays or deficits in certain areas of academics. So within specific learning disorder, there are different subtypes of learning disorder. And that is what dyslexia is. Dyslexia is a subtype of learning disorder. From this moment forward, I'm going to refer to what we're talking about as specific learning disorder or SLD, just because that is the term that we use in the DSM. That's our Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders that psychologists use. Before diving into the diagnostic criteria of specific learning disorder, I think we should differentiate between specific learning disorder and the diagnosis we talked about last episode, intellectual disability. First, let's talk about the similarities. So both intellectual disability and specific learning disorder are under the category of neurodevelopmental disorders. This means that the symptomology or the challenges for the individual would have started in the developmental period. They were not acquired later in life. They did not show up in adolescence. These are challenges that can be documented as having started at a younger age. They might not be 
fully noticeable until certain gaps widen, um, usually in the school years. But you can usually look back on childhood and say, okay, we started to see some delays at a young age. A second similarity between intellectual disability and specific learning disorder is that these diagnoses are considered lifelong. Generally, the impairments that are associated with each, uh, they can wax and wane throughout the lifespan, but they are considered lifelong diagnoses. The third similarity between these two diagnoses is that both can make school really challenging. We might see delays in academic skills, both for kids with intellectual disability, as well as for students with specific learning disorder. So we might see gaps for both, uh, but we'll kind of learn later that the nature of those delays look a little bit different. The fourth similarity I wanted to mention between these two diagnoses is that they are brain-based impairments. What I mean by this is the symptoms that we see aren't attributable to lack of opportunity. So, you know, significant absenteeism or um, having experienced trauma, maybe living in another country and having missed a significant portion of formal schooling and then coming to Canada or the States. And now we see students who are behind their peers academically. That is not the same as intellectual disability or a specific learning disorder because what we're seeing, the delays in academics are a result of those missed learning opportunities. The last similarity I wanted to mention between intellectual disability and specific learning disorder is that both are diagnosed by yours truly, school psychologists or clinical psychologists. Now let's talk about the primary difference between intellectual disability and specific learning disorder. If you listen to the last episode on intellectual disability, you might recall that individuals with intellectual disability have deficits in cognitive skills that are more global in nature. Of course, they have strengths and weaknesses within um, cognitive skills, but for the most part, that overall IQ is falling in what is called the extremely low range, Whereas for specific learning disorder, these individuals have intellectual functioning that is considered within more um, normal average ranges. Sometimes it might be low average, sometimes it might be high average, but for the most part, that cognitive skill set is in a higher range than we might see for individuals with intellectual disability. For individuals with SLD, there are still brain differences compared to, say, a neurotypical brain, sometimes in the structure of the brain or sometimes in how it works, such as processing deficits. And the behavioral manifestation of those processing deficits is specific challenges in either reading, writing, or mathematics. So maybe this is a good time to just dive into the diagnostic criteria of specific learning disorder.
There are four main criteria that need to be met for someone to be diagnosed with specific learning disorder. The first one, criterion A, is difficulties learning and using academic skills as indicated by the presence of at least one of the following symptoms that has persisted for at least six months, despite the provision of interventions that target those difficulties. So that was a mouthful. I'm going to pare it down. Basically, a challenge in one of the following areas, even if there was extra help like tutoring. Number one, inaccurate or slow and effortful word reading. Number two, difficulty understanding the meaning of what is read. Number three, difficulties with spelling. Number four, difficulties with written expression. Number five, difficulties mastering number sense, number facts, or calculation. And finally, number six, difficulties with mathematical reasoning. So that was criterion A. A person had to have one of those symptoms for at least six months. Criterion B needs to be met as well. It's also a mouthful, so I'm going to paraphrase. Basically, criterion B is that the affected academic skills uh, are measurably lower than what we would expect for an individual's age. And it impacts them at school or at work or in activities of daily life. When I say measurably, I mean that we use standardized achievement measures and comprehensive assessment to be able to document or quantify that the individual's challenges are significantly lower than we would expect for their age. I'm going to give an example of a situation in which criterion B wouldn't be met. Say that there is there are two students in second grade. Well, we know that reading develops on a continuum. And one student in the middle of the year might be at grade level. So their reading level is considered at mid-grade two level. Another student's reading level might be at more beginning of grade two level. That's not substantially lower than would be expected for their age. We would maybe want to see if that gap widens over time, uh, especially if that student has tutoring or extra help at school, one-on-one or in small groups, and they don't make the gains that we would expect, you know, they don't catch up, Um, then we would start considering a specific learning disorder. So let's say by the end of grade two or now beginning of grade three, even with extra help, that gap has widened for that student, we're for sure going to start considering a specific learning disorder and hopefully get them assessed as soon as possible. Okay, so we're continuing with the diagnostic criteria. So criterion A was uh, difficulties in a list of certain academic skills that have to have existed for six months. Criterion B is that we have to prove that they are lower than would be expected for that student's age. And now let's talk about criterion C, which is that those learning difficulties have to have started in the school age years. Usually that is when we would notice it, uh, just like I discussed in that example of the two second grade students. 
but sometimes the symptoms don't become fully manifest until the student is a little bit older and the demands for those skills exceed their capacities. An example I'll give for that is that there might be a student for whom we notice some math challenges in grade two or three, but they're just a little bit behind grade level and we're not super concerned about it. But then they get into grade six or grade seven and they start taking tests that are timed or we notice that um, even though they are seemingly quite capable and we notice them excelling in lots of other different academic areas, math assignments seem to take them a lot longer uh, than their peers. And sometimes we might notice that student, they've got it today, they totally understand, and then they come back to it tomorrow or the next day or next week, and it's like they've never seen that type of math question. It's a lot harder for them to retain um, those arithmetic procedures in their memory. Okay, so to recap Criterion C, even though this, the gaps, the academic gaps may not widen until a later date, like adolescence or maybe even university. We can still go back to that individual's history and say, well, wait a second. There actually were math difficulties starting at a young age. They just weren't as noticeable as the gaps we're seeing right now. Okay, the last criterion is criterion D. And that is that the learning difficulties aren't better accounted for by basically other reasons like intellectual disability. Or another reason might be uncorrected uh, visual impairments. So a student who needs glasses um, isn't wearing them in class or during testing. Well, yes, there may be going to show us some academic difficulty, but we can point to the reason for that difficulty, and it could be uncorrected visual acuity or auditory acuity. Another reason that could explain the academic challenges is inadequate opportunities or um, lack of proficiency in the language that the academic skills are being taught. So if we just had a student move here from China and English is an additional language for them. They're still just developing and learning the English language, and we're teaching reading and writing strategies in English. Maybe if they're having difficulty with reading, it's kind of better explained by that. So we would want to see how they are developing with those academic skills once their English language is better developed. That last criterion is kind of the crux of a phrase that clinicians commonly use to describe specific learning disorder. I'm going to say the phrase, are you ready? In a nutshell, specific learning disorder is unexpected academic underachievement. I almost should have started with that, right? I should have just said that sentence and then just been like, okay, that's the end of the episode because that's what SLD is. Unexpected academic underachievement, meaning we notice and can quantify that given a student's intellectual functioning and given the learning opportunities that they've had, we would expect a higher level of academic achievement from what we're seeing. All right, now let's talk about the prevalence of specific learning disorder. It's more common than the topic we covered last episode, intellectual disability. 
in that specific learning disorder occurs in 5 to 15% of school-age children, and that's across different languages and cultures. The prevalence in adults is unknown, but appears to be approximately 4%. As society learns more about specific learning disorder, I'm definitely seeing that trickle down to our kids, which is awesome because it means that the stigma about learning differences is starting to be reduced. Um, Kids don't always know how to pronounce the different subtypes of learning disorder. One just little story I'll share is that last week I was observing a couple students uh, in a classroom and one of the students asked me if I'm a teacher and I said, uh, no, I'm a psychologist. Do you know what that is? And she said, yes, I do. I'm seeing a psychologist because I have dyselia. And then before I could correct her and let her know that it's pronounced dyslexia, her friend came over and said, my brother has dyselia. And I just thought that that was really cute that students are, they know about the different learning disorders and they're not embarrassed to talk about it and it's not considered strange or less than. And the more that students start to learn about dyslexia and other specific learning disorders, the more they're gonna learn what they need to support their learning. And that's how they will eventually advocate for themselves. Something else I should mention in terms of prevalence is that specific learning disorder is more common in males than in females. Sometimes the ratios range from about two to one. Sometimes it's even three to one. Meaning for every female that's diagnosed with specific learning disorder, there are two or three males diagnosed with SLD. We don't know a ton about what causes specific learning disorder, but we can talk a bit about risks and prognostic factors. That does not mean causes. That means these are factors that are likely to increase the risk of specific learning disorder in that they are factors correlated with later diagnosis of specific learning disorder. The first category of risks and prognostic factors is uh, genetic And that is just that specific learning disorder does appear to run in families, especially in the reading domain, family history of reading difficulties like dyslexia and parental literacy skills predict literacy problems or specific learning disorder in children. In terms of environmental factors, premature birth or very low birth weight also increase the risk for specific learning disorder, as well as prenatal exposure to nicotine. There are also some factors in preschool that seem to predict uh, prognosis or outcome of the level of intensity of a specific learning disorder. For instance, delays or disorders in speech or language in the preschool years, predicts later specific learning disorder in reading and written expression. Also, impaired cognitive processing in the preschool years in certain areas like working memory or um, what's called rapid serial naming or rapid automatic naming also predicts specific learning disorder. One of the cognitive processing deficits I definitely should mention is called phonological awareness. So that is our brain's understanding of sound structure of letters and words. 
an example of some tasks that would be assessed when looking at phonological awareness is how do we break down words into syllables? Let's use the word syllable as an example. My brain has an understanding that the word syllable can be further broken down into three sounds. Syllable. Even words with one syllable can then be further broken down into what is called three phonemes. For example, the word cat can be further broken down into the phonemes k-a-t. Phonological awareness involves the ability to break those sounds apart, blend them together, substitute them for other sounds, um, isolate them, rhyme them, identify rhymes, produce rhymes. Now, why I'm going on this tangent about what phonological awareness is, is because preschool children with poor phonological awareness predicts later diagnosis of specific learning disorder in reading or written expression. Strong phonological awareness means that students are going to have an easier time pairing sounds to letters and letter combinations and vice versa. And that lays the foundation for how we learn to read. Okay, the last factor I want to talk about that predicts certain outcomes for specific learning disorder is attention, or I guess lack thereof. So preschool children who have inattentive behaviors, meaning uh, low stamina for focus and concentration, tend to have later difficulties in reading and math. In fact, there is a high rate of double diagnosis of both specific learning disorder and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD. It's common for a person to have both of those diagnoses. And when they do, um, that unfortunately is associated with uh, worse mental health outcomes later on. And why I'm noting that is, is obviously really important information because if your child or you yourself or one of your students has both those diagnoses, it's that much more important to take these diagnoses seriously and seek the proper accommodations and support. In general, we need to take specific learning disorder seriously because children, adolescents, and adults with specific learning disorder are at increased risk um, for suicidal ideation and suicide attempts. I'm not trying to scare you or shock you, but I definitely didn't want to hide that information. Um, The good news is that systematic, intensive, and individualized instruction can improve the learning difficulties in many individuals and promote the use of compensatory strategies. And then this helps uh, individuals manage what would have been otherwise poor outcomes. Other functional consequences that occur as a result of specific learning disorder are higher rates of high school dropout, lower rates of post-secondary education, high levels of psychological distress, higher rates of unemployment and underemployment, and lower incomes. But like I said, 
when there's high levels of social or emotional support, as well as um, targeted instruction for the individual's academic area of deficit, that leads to better mental health outcomes. I noted that ADHD and specific learning disorder are commonly co-occurring, but what I should also mention is that specific learning disorder diagnosis co-occurs with a lot of other disorders, such as other neurodevelopmental disorders like autism spectrum disorder or communication disorders. It also co-occurs with other mental disorders like anxiety, depression, or bipolar disorder. Another, I guess, associated feature of specific learning disorder, so not necessarily something that's going to make it into the diagnostic criteria, but just a characteristic that's known to be related, is that individuals with specific learning disorder often have an uneven profile of abilities, such as above average abilities in drawing, design, and other visual spatial abilities. So there's kind of that creative flair that is sometimes associated for individuals with SLD. Let's wrap this episode up by talking about how we program for students with SLD. Here in Manitoba, and likely in other provinces in Canada, students with specific learning disorder are not eligible for what's called curricular modifications. That means when we look at the grade that they're in and all of the curricular outcomes that they're expected to achieve by the end of that year, we're not allowed to change those, reduce those, delete those, anything like that. What I'm saying is that when we learn that a student has a diagnosis of SLD, it is expected that they are still under the umbrella of regular programming. But knowing that they have SLD, we certainly want to program for them appropriately within that. But how do we do that? Well, the first thing we do is accommodations and adaptations. These are strategies for changing the environment or the kinds of instruction or the way that a student's knowledge is assessed. Some of the really common adaptations are giving a student additional time to process and formulate ideas, responses, and written output. Another common adaptation is that assignments, projects, and assessments are reduced. So if a student has a specific learning disorder in math, and we have an assignment with 50 multiplication questions, maybe the student with the math learning disability doesn't have to do all 50 of those. If they can show the teacher that they understand the concept within 25 of those questions, I think that's enough because we're taking into consideration that, yes, we want to know that they can do it, but it takes them way longer to complete said assignment than a student without a math learning disability. It's exhausting having a specific learning disorder. So we use accommodations and adaptations to cut down on some of that energy and effort draining. Other common accommodations are alternate response formats to reduce written demand. So if a student has a specific learning disorder in written expression, maybe an essay is not the greatest way to assess whether they understand 
um, what we're learning about in social studies. Many students with specific learning disorder are quite bright and have absorbed a lot of the content being taught in class, especially if multimodal instruction is being used. Lots of visuals, lots of hands-on activities, maybe videos, um, maybe class discussion. And so they're going to have learned a lot about what was taught. And maybe an essay isn't giving them the best shot at showing you what they know. So we're going to give them other opportunities to show us what they know, such as telling us about it, creating a video. Maybe the test for them is multiple choice or fill in the blanks or true or false or matching rather than expecting them to write an essay. I definitely want to mention how access to technology can be a huge adaptation for individuals with specific learning disorder. What we did without technology for kids with dyslexia or learning disorder in writing, I do not know. It's amazing what technology can do now. We have speech-to-text and text-to-speech technology. And this is huge for allowing kids to access the learning and also show us what they know for assessment. So for a student who is struggling to read at grade level, they can use an iPad or a tablet or a laptop to highlight information, pop in some headphones, and have that text read to them. They're able to absorb the information and understand the content, but it would just take them a really long time to read that information compared to other students. By the time they finish reading it, they're exhausted and done and really not being given the best chance at understanding what we're trying to teach. Besides technology allowing us to read with our ears, it can also allow us to write with our voice. So instead of writing a big, long essay, students can use their voice to dictate their thoughts into a device and have it written out into an application like Microsoft Word. Put up your hand if you're one of those adults who uses dictation on your smartphone. So many people use this tool now, which is awesome because, again, reducing stigma. It's just a normal tool that we use in everyday life. It can be super helpful for everyone, but is an absolute necessity for students with specific learning disorder. This is the point at which I'm going to work very hard to avoid going down a heated rabbit hole about lack of equity in education, how certain students in certain areas have access to this technology depending on where they live, and maybe other students, depending on where they live, don't have access to this kind of technology. And that is super unfair and unequitable. And that's kind of just all I'll say about that. As educational professionals, know that we're always working super hard to get that access for kids to technology, whether it be through grants or other creative means like trying to find community organizations that provide this kind of technology or funding to be able to purchase it. When a student doesn't have access to speech to text, sometimes an adaptation that is used for them is called scribing. 
So say a fifth grade student has some great ideas for a story that they want to write in English language arts. Well, then an adult might help them to write out those ideas. There's lots of different accommodations and adaptations that are available to students with specific learning disorder. The last one I'll mention is that assessments and assignments can be completed in a quieter alternative setting. This is sometimes easier said than done. Many of you work in school settings in which space quiet space is at a premium, and it's not always easy to find this for students. But why I'm mentioning it is because often students who are diagnosed with specific learning disorder in their school age years, and they have a formal assessment report to support that diagnosis, those adaptations can transfer into post-secondary education. At least here in our province, That assessment from the school age years is relevant for university. I know of a student um, who we assessed in seventh grade, and now she's in second or third year university, and she is able to write her tests in an alternative setting. Okay, where was I? We're talking about how to program for students with specific learning disorders. I said the first thing that we would do is accommodations and adaptations. The second thing that we would do is intervention, which is just fancy lingo for targeted instruction. Do you remember when I was talking about poor mental health outcomes for individuals with specific learning disorder? And I said that systematic, intensive, and individualized instruction um, that is evidence-based meaning based on research is going to be helpful for improving their outcomes. That was a lot of mumbo jumbo. Basically what I'm saying is that when an individual has a specific learning disorder, the assessment is likely to have identified exactly where those areas of deficit are for them. For example, an individual with dyslexia, classic dyslexia, really struggles to decode words, to sound out those phonemes and sounds in words and letters. And so we would want them to have targeted practice on exactly that skill. Just a hot tip, in general, targeted practice is more effective when it's done for shorter durations of time, um, but every day more frequently, rather than just kind of a once a week for a longer duration of time. Generally, if students work with tutors outside of school, it is going to look kind of like a once a week appointment that is an hour or two. So I understand that this best practice advice that I'm giving isn't always realistic, but I did just want to mention that if you can fit a few minutes of practice in per day, especially within the school system, within the school day, that's going to be more effective. It's also nicer to the student because you're making the student practice something that they're inherently not good at. And they're going to really dig in their heels if we're making them do that for a couple hours rather than this is going to take a few minutes. Let's set a timer right now. Oh my gosh, you're almost done. It's been a whole minute. We can do this. That's going to be a little easier for them to wrap their heads around. Okay. 
So we said the first important aspect of programming for students with specific learning disorder is adaptations and accommodations. The second important piece of supporting students with SLD is that intervention or that targeted practice. The third piece that I really want to emphasize, and that's why I saved the best for last, is focusing on the student's strengths and interests and really building those up. This is going to lead to better mental health outcomes and just long-term success in general. So many students with specific learning disorder have passions, hobbies, and interests in a variety of areas like art or music. And if we can foster those strengths and really give them opportunities to continue developing those, those kids are going to fly. I'm thinking about a student who I diagnosed with dyslexia last year. His parents, it was nothing that anyone told them to do. But he was super interested in cars and auto mechanics and kind of the inner workings of vehicles. And so his parents on weekends would take him to car shows and help to help him to talk to others who work in the field, mechanics, car salespeople. It was awesome. This kid is likely going to grow up and be some kind of an engineer And he's also getting a chance to build his confidence because when students have specific learning disorder, school is hard. They need to be given those chances to really shine. We need to combat the low self-esteem that comes with this kind of diagnosis by building up their self-esteem in things that they're good at and things that they're interested in. The student that I'm talking about was in grade three. And his reading level was at about the grade one to beginning of grade two level. That makes school hard for him. But he is so smart. I was having car problems and I was just telling him a little bit about it. And he was essentially asking questions to narrow down and diagnose the issue that my vehicle is having. I'm 34 years old. I had no idea what was wrong with my car. But this eight-year-old student did. And that's because his parents were giving him opportunity to develop that interest through YouTube videos, car shows, finding him books based on his interest, being good listeners when he wants to talk about it, etc. Another student I know is a talker and has a great sense of humor. And I swear she could be a stand-up comedian in 10, 15 years. So her teacher has started giving her the opportunity to do a bit of a routine during their morning meeting. By routine, I literally mean a stand-up routine. She has a few minutes to tell jokes or something she's been observing about her fellow students um, that she wants to share or comment on, and it cracks up her classmates. Not only Is this amazing for her self-confidence that she gets a chance to shine and that her teacher is recognizing her gift, but also it gives her classmates a chance to see that even if a peer struggles with reading or writing or math, they likely have talents in other areas. We all have gifts to offer. All right. I think that brings this episode to a close. We as school psychologists get a lot of questions about specific learning disorder. So if you were listening to this episode 
then it made you come up with some follow-up questions like, what about this? And what about that specific situation? Absolutely. Please write the podcast. For now, I just want to say thank you for your attention and for your interest in specific learning disorder. If you have any questions or topics of interest you want me to cover, please email the podcast at schoolpsychpodcast at gmail.com. If you find the podcast helpful, please rate and review wherever you listen so others can find it. Thanks for tuning in and catch you next time on the School Psych Podcast.